0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series of messages on the Book of the Twelve, today looking at the first part of the prophet Zechariah. And now, here's David. Thank you for the opening uh... Songs and thoughts and prayers. I'd like to begin by reading Jesus' words. I have made his statement the title of the message this morning. Jesus said, change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of God. George Marshall, anybody remember him? Jerry, you might be the only guy around here that really remembers George Marshall. So, not many of us are familiar with his name, but in 1947, General Marshall was U.S. Secretary of State. In that capacity, he proposed a plan for the reconstruction of war-ravaged Europe. This plan imaginatively named the Marshall Plan, would provide economic aid to all the European countries devastated by World War II, even those that had been enemies of the Allies. And by all accounts, it was an outstanding success story. So this is what West German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer said of the plan. The plan gave Germany assistance. But more importantly, new hope. Probably for the first time in history, a victorious country held out its hands so that the vanquished might rise again. And uh, British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan had this to say about the plan. He said it, it's, it was a lifeline to sinking men that brought hope where there was none by giving recipients permission not only to overcome their present difficulties, but to imagine their future prosperity. So this morning we're turning our attention to the book of Zechariah, the 11th of the 12 prophets. It has a similar objective as the Marshall Plan. Zechariah delivers a message of encouragement for those who are rebuilding their lives After the devastating conquest of their nation, it is a message for the present and a vision for the future. It offers hope based on the expectation that the king is returning. There is work to do and changes to be made in preparation for life in his glorious kingdom. In that way, Zechariah is building on the promises of, uh, that were given in the book of Jeremiah. Here's what Jeremiah 29, 10, 11 says. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do, what, do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Zachariah's optimism... Sorry. On ahead there. Okay, sorry. I am right. I'm not sure I'm right. (laughs) We're, We're kind of lost here. Go back to that one. All right, I'm, I'm running two computers this morning. That, that's good. Um, so Haggai and Zechariah. As we learned from Steve last week, Zechariah was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. They were tag team partners, both sent to encourage the work of rebuilding the temple, but they had different approaches. Haggai fr- primarily focused on the present circumstances with a few brief references to the distant future. Zechariah reverses these priorities with the larger part of his encouragement focused on the future glory of the messianic kingdom. So Zechariah's optimism is based on the faithfulness and sovereignty of Yahweh, or the Lord. Zechariah 1.3, this is the beginning of his book. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Look at this verse. By naming the Lord Almighty uh, in the beginning, the middle, and the end of the verse, Zachariah is intentionally aiming the spotlight on the Lord. The Lord has a plan. Those who want to participate in that plan need to change direction. The Lord will faithfully return to those who return to him. The book of Zechariah anticipates the return of the king, the Lord Almighty. The anticipation of his return will give the people the desire, determination, and the hope needed to continue the work that has been started. Because there are uh, 14 chapters, it was decided to assign two speakers to prepare the messages on Zachariah. The book can be divided into roughly two main sections, so I'm going to focus my thoughts on the, roughly the first half of the book, which is mostly the account of one very intense night in the life of Zechariah. Jim's going to cover everything else that I didn't get done. So. And that's next week. In that one night, though, the one night we're looking at tonight, Zachariah had not one or two, but eight visions from the Lord. Talk. How many of you have bizarre dreams? Now, some people remember dreams more than others, but I think we can all relate to sometimes having strange things happen in our dreams. Whether or not our dreams have any significant meaning is probably up for debate, but at times they definitely relate to actual events. Now recently my father-in-law shared the details of one of his dreams and here it is in his words. Big bang, followed by lots of little bangs. I'm sliding down an icy slope and the brakes don't work. Just before I fall off the cliff, I get hold of the bedside table and save my life. That's when he woke up. Now the, the background of this uh makes more sense, or this dream makes more sense when you hear the background. This is a picture of of the bed that he was sleeping on at the time. He'd been given this uh, bed frame with the chipboard frame, which gave way in the middle of the night. And there he is, tipping off to the side of his bed and sliding down the cliff. So, you know, his dream actually made sense according to the details of the time. Like our dreams, though, Zachariah's visions are bizarre, and he had difficulty understanding what he was seeing. He was provided with an angelic guide who could answer his questions, but sometimes even those answers leave us scratching our heads. The Hebrew Bible is meditative literature. This means that reading is a good start. But to actually mine the wisdom to be discovered will require rereading, time spent pondering, noticing intentional connections or links to other scripture, paying attention to the words and details, analyzing the literary techniques, discussing it with others, and still more time spent reflecting on the meaning. Even after all that, there remains considerable divergence in commentaries regarding the meanings of these visions of Zechariah, which were highly symbolic. It would seem that the Holy Spirit intends for the recipients of these visions to wrestle with their meaning, and when they have wrestled for a while, they should wrestle some more. There may indeed be multiple lessons to be learned. We'll spend a few minutes briefly surveying these eight visions, and then we'll do a meditation exercise on the fourth vision. As I noted, there's quite a bit of diversity of opinions to the meaning of these visions. I'll share a few of my thoughts, but they leave a lot of room for improvement, and I encourage you to explore them further on your own or in groups. So a number of commentators have noticed a chiastic pattern in these visions. Big word there. Phil mentioned this word in his, in his, uh, te- in his message on Zephaniah a few weeks ago. It's commonly used by writers in the Hebrew Bible. The writer forms a symmetric pattern using pairs of similar thoughts or ideas presented in reverse order. If you create an outline on paper, the shape forms the tri- a triangle like the left side of the letter X, which is the Greek letter uh, chi, which is, comes with the name chiasm or chiasm. Writers often use this technique to draw attention to the material at the center of the pattern. So the verse, first vision is paired with the last, and the second has a link to the second last, and so on. Hopefully they'll become a little clearer as we take a, the high-level survey of these visions. So please engage your powers of imagination as we begin. So the connection between the first vision in chapter 1 and the last vision in chapter 6 is probably the easiest and the most obvious, as they both feature colored horses. Zachariah begins the night with the sight of horsemen on red, brown, and white horses, and an angel whom... When he asks what this sight means, he is told that these horsemen have been sent by the Lord to patrol the earth and to report on the state of the world. They report the world is at peace. Upon hearing this report, the Lord announces that the peaceful state of these nations that afflicted God's people is to be interrupted by his return to Jerusalem. Things are going to change. The rebuilding of the temple will be the first step in the road to the future flourishing of Jerusalem. Horses are central in the Eighth Vision. Four powerful teams of red, black, white, and dappled horses are pulling chariots. They are the four spirits of heaven, or the four winds of the sky, these horses are eager to patrol the earth and to achieve the Lord's purposes. So here we have two visions of the Lord's servants patrolling the earth. It seems that the Lord has a plan and that Spirit is at work throughout the world. let take a turn for the bazaar with the next pair of visions. In chapter 1, Zechariah sees four horns. They're probably animal horns, symbols of power and strength. They are the world powers that scattered God's people and destroyed Jerusalem. In the same vision, he sees four blacksmiths coming. They are coming to throw down the four horns that brought the terror to Israel. So the powers that brought terror will be made powerless. Next comes the most bizarre. A measuring basket. Not full of grain, but full of evil. Like the scene from a horror film, film, the heavy lid of the basket is lifted off and we jump back in surprise and disgust to see a woman in the basket. Her name is Wickedness. She's stuffed back into the basket and the heavy lid is replaced. The whole basket is then removed from the land and airlifted to Babylon, the place known for its opposition to God. So these two visions share the theme of the defeat of the forces. That oppose the kingdom of God. The knowledge that their enemies will be overthrown or defeated or contained and shipped out should give the workers confidence, the confidence required to continue building for the kingdom. The third and sixth visions are recorded in chapters 2 and chapter 5. So a divine surveyor is measuring Jerusalem. The survey determines that the walls of Jerusalem will not be able to contain all that will come to dwell there. There will, however, be a boundary of protection and containment. Zechariah 2, chapter 2, verse 5. I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord, and I will be the glory inside the city. So where have you thought about fire as a boundary and protection? Well, just as the flaming sword in Genesis 3:24 kept unworthy people from entering Eden and eating from the tree of life, a wall of fire will guard the entrance to the future Jerusalem. The protective wall will also be like the pillar of fire that protected God's people from the advancing Egyptian army as they waited beside the shores of the Red Sea. And it's not far to take a mental jump from Zechariah's vision of a city whose glory is the presence of God. To John's vision of the New Jerusalem, which is described in Revelation 21, as not needing the sun or the moon, because the glory of the Lamb will be its light. Vision number six is quite different from number three, but I think it shares something in common with the third. In this vision, Zachariah sees a scroll. Now, scrolls, they would be pretty familiar things. Often associated with the recorded messages from God, but there are at least three odd things about this scroll. The first and most obvious b- would be that it's a flying scroll. Now, how many, how do you picture a flying scroll? It's not every day you would see that. The second odd thing, maybe a little less obvious, but the dimensions of the scroll are a bit odd. It's large. 20 by 10 cubits, 30 by 15 feet. So it's pretty big there up in the sky, however you see it, which is uh, which is a bit, a large scroll seems a bit odd. But, but even stranger is that the dimensions are the proportions of these dimensions. It's rectangular. I imagine most scrolls are much longer than twice their width. So is there any significance to these dimensions? So here's one thought. What else in the Hebrew Bible is 20 by 10 cubits? Well, the tabernacle was 30 by 10 cubits, but the holy place was 20 by 10. Now, this was the area of the tabernacle that contained the table for the bread, the candle stand with seven candles, and the altar of incense. It was a place of restricted access. The entrance was barred by curtains bearing the images of cherubim, which were the beings that held that flaming sword at the entrance of Eden, and only the holy priests were permitted to enter the holy place. Okay, well, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with any flying scrolls? Well, let's look at the third oddity about this scroll. The scroll has writing on both sides. Now, most scrolls would be written only on one side. You can see the difficulty of reading a two-sided scroll. You know. <laughs> there are actually two other scrolls mentioned in the Bible that have writing on both sides. One the Ezekiel chapter 2, and the other in Revelation chapter 5. Both of those scrolls contain, contain doom and gloom messages. So too does this flying scroll. Both sides pronounce a curse. One side says that those who steal will be banished from the land, and the flip side proclaims that deceivers will also be banished. In other words, those that are not permitted access to the kingdom. So back to Revelation 22, which gives us a list of those who have access to the city and those who will be excluded. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are all who love to live a lie. So the third and sixth vision indicates that the kingdom will have boundaries Those who choose the path of deceit will be excluded, but anyone who heeds God's call to come to him will dwell in his presence. Zechariah echoes that in chapter 2, verses 6 and 10 and 11. Come away, flee from Babylon. Shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live among you Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day, and they too will be my people, and I will live among them. So, this kingdom sounds terrific. Certainly, something to sustain the rebuilding efforts. We come now to the central two visions. They portray the leaders of God's kingdom and the source of its power with intriguing detail. Let's take a moment and read Zechariah's account of the fourth vision. Then the angel of the Lord showed me Yeshua, which is the Hebrew pronunciation for Joshua. The high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand making accusations against Yeshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusation, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Yeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, Take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Yeshua, he said, See, I have taken away your sins, and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Then I said, They should also place a turban on his head. So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Yeshua and said, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among these others standing here. Listen to me, O Yeshua, the high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, now look at the jewel I have set before you, before Yeshua, a single stone with seven facets or eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will remove the sins of the land in a single day. So Zachariah sees Joshua the high priest in a courtroom setting. The prosecutor, who in Hebrew is called the accuser, is making the act. Accusation that Joshua is unfit to be a priest. The evidence is there for all to see and smell. Joshua is filthy and it's more than dirt. The word filthy refers to excrement. He's covered by the stench of the nation's sin. But the Lord rejects the accusation on the grounds of a divine restoration plan. Joshua's filth and soot is to be removed. He is given clean clothing and a priestly turban and promised an elevated position of authority. The Lord extends this vision to all the priests and reveals that they are symbols of things to come. Also coming will be the Lord's servant, the branch. Who could this be? Is there a connection to this mysterious stone with seven eyes? Seven eyes speak of the div- divine presence. The stone and the branch are connected to the announcement that the sin of the land will be removed in one day. Very interesting. Zachariah is not getting much sleep this night. The angel has to wake him up for the fist vision. Hey Zach, what do you see now? So Zachariah rubs the sleep out of his eyes and sees an elaborate lampstand, a bowl with seven lamps supplied with oil from seven, from two olive trees. The angelic guide tells Zachariah that this is a message is the rubbable, who was the governor and the descendant of King David. It is meant to remind him that the success of the building project is due not is due to the work of God's Spirit and not the strength of human endeavor. Prominent in this prominent in this vision is, is the oil. It's supplied by the trees and channeled to the lamps. Oil is a symbol for God's Spirit in the Bible. The Spirit is the fuel that brings the light of God's presence to the world. Many commentators see the, the, see the two olive trees as representing Joshua the high priest and serving the Lord as leaders responsible for the work of rebuilding the temple and restoration of the nation. So I find it interesting that these two trees are the source of the oil that supplies the light to the world. If we jump ahead to chapter 6, we see another sort of vision of Joshua, the priest, receiving a crown. He represents one called the branch, who will be both king and priest. Here's Zechariah chapter 6. This is outside that night of visions, but another message from the Lord that that, uh, Zechariah receives. Here is the man called the branch. He will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord, then he will receive royal honor and will rule as king from his throne. He will also serve as priest from his throne, and there will be perfect harmony between his two roles. So in retrospect, the two olive trees may represent the offices of king and priest, combined in one person who will send forth the Spirit of God. These two central visions bring into view one who will be both priest and king. People from many nations will come to participate in the building of his temple and of his kingdom. So that was a very quick survey of uh, Zechariah's visions. But at the meditation exercise, I'd like to take the remaining time just to consider some possible links to other scriptures contained in Zechariah's fourth vision. By doing this, we're inviting the Holy Spirit to help us in our understanding and to speak to our hearts. In this vision, Joshua is clothed by the Lord. What are some scriptural links to clothing? So here's a partial list, and you can review it later from the slides. And you can probably find many others. So this is just a, a very cursory look. So where's the first incident in the Scripture that God provides clothing for someone? Back in Genesis again, chapter 3, verse 21, God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. They had chosen their own path rather than God's and felt shame in their nakedness. God provided covering for their shame and demonstrates his willingness to deal with sin and its effects on humanity. In Zechariah's vision, Joshua was wearing filthy clothes. These were removed and he was given clean priestly clothing to symbolize the removal of sin. Exodus 28 gives us detailed instructions regarding the clothing of priests. Make sacred garments for Aaron that are glorious and beautiful. Instruct all the skillful craftsmen whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. Have them make garments for Aaron that will distinguish him as a priest set apart for my service. These are the garments that they are to make, a chest piece, an ephod, a robe, a patterned tunic, a turban, and a sash. These must be worn whenever Aaron and his sons enter the tabernacle or approach the altar in the holy place to perform their priestly duties then they will not incur guilt and die so clothing is an important symbol of purity and holiness which is required for those serving in the presence of the lord it also symbolizes the condition the spiritual condition of those of those who are wearing it joshua the priest was filthy as he symbolically wore the sins of the people but god removed the filth and dressed him in fine priestly clothes Joshua may be the main character here, but he's not alone. Zechariah 3, 6 and 8 again, we read this earlier, but the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Joshua and said, This is what the Lord of heaven's army said. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards, and I will let you walk among those others standing here. Listen to me, O Yeshua, the high priest, and all you other priests, you are symbols of things to come. The angel's words here were also addressed to the other priests. And remind me of the Lord's message to the people, to his people, delivered by Moses when he came down from the mountain. And Moses transmitted this message. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For the earth belongs to me, and I will, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation, a whole nation of priests, everyone wearing priestly clothes. So Isaiah, the prophet, picks up on this theme in well-known chapter one. We read a little bit in the first service of this chapter, but it goes on here, Isaiah 61, 6. And you will be called priests of the Lord; you will be named men. greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Peter, in his letter, extends this to the followers of Jesus. 1 Peter 2. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possessions. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he calls you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. The followers of Jesus need to be dressed in proper attire if they're going to reflect God's goodness and be part Of his building project, Jesus emphasizes this requirement for proper attire in a parable parable related to clothing, and it's recorded in Matthew 22, and it's said to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. So this parable tells the story of king's lavish uh, king's plan for a lavish royal wedding for his son. Unfortunately, the invited guests snubbed the invitations. Nobody nobody comes. The king then opened the, in, opened the invitations to everyone, regardless of their past history or social status. The hall was filled with guests. But there was one who came thinking that the quality of clothing wasn't important. The king had that one thrown out. If the clothing is filthy, then the accuser has a point. Improper dress would disqualify one from serving in God's presence. God offers fine priestly garments to everyone who chooses to accept his invitation. Access to the presence of God is denied those that reject that offer. The Apostle Paul draws us our draws attention to the dress code for the followers of Jesus. He writes to the Colossian Christians, Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and its all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you will learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Since God chose you to be His holy people, He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must Forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. It turns out that Paul was echoing the instructions that Zechariah gave to those working to build for the coming kingdom. Chapter 7 of Zechariah This is what the Lord of heaven's army says Judge fairly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners and the poor and do not scheme against each other. Your ancestors refused to listen to this message. They stubbornly turned away and put their fingers in their ears to keep from hearing. They made their hearts as hard as stone. And in Zechariah 8, But now I am determined to bless Jerusalem and the people of Judah. So don't be afraid. But this is what you must do. Tell the truth to each other. Render verdicts in your court that are just and that lead to peace. Don't scheme against each other. Stop your love of telling lies that you swear are the truth. So, we've come full circle. Zachariah described visions of a future kingdom designed to ignite people's passions for working and living in that kingdom. In order to participate, they themselves had to return or change. They had to change their clothing by changing their hearts to experience the joy of being builders in the kingdom. The message remains the same for us. Just as Jesus said, change your hearts and your lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. We're going to ask the team to come back and give us the last song. Heavenly Father, indeed, may our hearts all be just drawn close to you, and may we live our lives for you, that your kingdom would be built among us, that you would help us to just keep building that kingdom, Lord, both now and in that day when we can just be singing the praises of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.